A bunch of years ago, when I was a young writer at Sports Illustrated, I was dispatched to Arizona to cover a senior golf tournament. I knew nothing about golf and nothing about covering golf. I did notice, however, that many of the writers observing everything were sitting in the clubhouse in front of televisions, which struck me as lazy. In my know-it-all glory, I decided I'd walk the course inside the ropes. So there I was, walking the course inside the ropes, following the action, staring at my notepad, when suddenly I hear, Hey, asshole! You, asshole! Look down! It was Gary Player's caddy doing the yelling. I did as he said and looked down. There was the golf ball between my legs. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Singing Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Charlie Pierce, the Esquire political blogger and one of the all-time great sports and feature writers. This is episode number 166. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. Uh all right. Well, Charlie, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Um, it's funny. I was talking to uh, a good friend of mine is Steve Russian who went to Marquette. Yeah. And I said, how, how, how well do you know Charlie Pierce? And he said, he said, not that well, but he wrote, ask him about the avalanche, the fabled, fabled Marquette bar, Al McGuire and Trump, and then put your feet up for an hour. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I, yeah. Steve and I have only actually been in the same room about twice. But uh, he was, I think he was like maybe 10 years after me. I'm yeah. 75. I think, he was, I think he was 88. In fact, I think he was one of Chris Farley's classmates. Oh, interesting. There you go. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not sure when Steve got out. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, uh, you know, it, it's, we had a, you know, we've, it, for a little journalism school, we've turned out some respectable alumni. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting, actually. I wasn't going to go here, but you and I, so I went to University of Delaware, and right. a lot of journalists have come out of Delaware, a lot of journalists have come out of Marquette. Um, I get asked all the time, again, I wasn't even going to go here on this podcast, we actually an interesting guy to talk about this with. Um, I came out of a tiny little program, you came out of a small program, we've both been in the business a long time now, do you, people always ask, does it matter? Like, should you go, if you can go to Northwestern and you want to be a journalist, or if you want to go to, or should you go to Syracuse, or, or should you go to a Delaware or Marquette? Missouri, yeah. Okay. Uh, I was lucky uh, when I <laughs> when I got to Marquette. They told us after we'd enrolled that the school had lost its accreditation the previous spring. That's awesome. Didn't find this out until we got there. <laughs> Surprise! Uh, but I got lucky in that <clears throat> my junior year, my sophomore year, uh, a guy named George Reedy, who used to be uh, the press secretary for Lyndon Johnson, he was one of the first reporters hired by what was then called United Press. Uh, later became UPI, uh, and was a political writer and, theory, and political theory and political historian, became the dean, and he sort of became my mentor. Uh, and because the J School was, at that point, pretty battered, right now it's, it's in wonderful shape. It's a multimedia school. Mm-hmm. It got a lot of money from, you know, a couple of, uh, of sugar daddies and sugar mamas, and it's just a, it's a terrific facility right now. But back then it was it was it was tiny. It was it was located when I started in an old nursing dorm, about two blocks from campus, and about four blocks from the Avalanche, actually. Uh, and George, because we didn't have enough 
we had enough classes to get enough credits in journalism, but we didn't have enough classes to get enough graduate uh, credits to graduate. Right. So we all took, and George encouraged us. He took us. He encouraged us to take all kinds of different courses, and essentially treat the university as a candy store. And so I wound up taking a lot of history. Uh, I wound up taking a you know I mean a couple of English courses, probably not as many as I should have. And we also had, we had to take twelve hours of theology. This was back when mm-hmm. you had to take twelve of philosophy and twelve of theology at being a Jesuit school and all. And I didn't want to take theoretical theology. I just didn't want to read a bunch of lugubrious Germans. Mm-hmm. But I found a guy who taught scripture history. He taught like three courses in scripture history, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the Gnostics, and one kind of general uh, Christian and pre-Christian discovery, which was half archaeology and half scripture. And I fell in love with that. So I took this, this one guy's course. I took like three courses. So when, you know, Dan Brown's book came out and everybody learned about, you know, the, the gospel of Judas and all this other stuff, I was already there. I'd learned about that when I, when I was like 20 years old. But I was happy that I went there in that uh, I, I, I learned a lot. The best thing I learned in journalism school uh, was that I learned how to do a title search. We had a, a course where you learned how to use government records. So I learned how to do a title search. Yeah. But other than that, uh, you know, I wrote the way I wanted to write. Uh, and I never stopped. And I, it caused me some trouble with some members of the faculty there. But I always had George to go, you know, talk to at the end of the day. Uh, so that was, that was very important to me. Wait, what was the um, – we all have our stories. What was your biggest – trouble you caused or got in while at Marquette? Well, there was, uh, the biggest trouble I got was, the biggest troublemaking story I got was that I caught the student body president uh, forging letters to the editor of the school paper in his own name, under other names. Wow. And I enlisted you know, breaking the bank of the, the, of the, the budget for this, for the market Tribune, I enlisted a handwriting analyst to, to, as part of my backup. Wow. Uh, and so that caused the most trouble. I got in the most trouble because I kept writing the way I wanted to write. And well, as I said, as I say now, it's completely different there now. They've got a lot of money, tremendous facilities, a wide-ranging and great faculty, none of which was the case when I went there. Uh, a lot of the guys there didn't write very well. And, you know, I was arrogant enough to, you know, demonstrate my disdain for what they were trying to teach me in terms of style and voice and, and everything else. Uh, but at the same time, I learned so much in other courses that it helped me later on to be more of a generalist. So I think I got more out of the university than I did out of its J school. I always say, though, um, 
whenever I'm sure you get letters from like aspiring journalists and college journalists and sure. they'll send you the clips and they'll send clips and they'll start with the Marquette basketball team beat Akron 87 to 73 yesterday behind 23 points. And I'm always like crumple, crumple next, you know, blah, blah. Like you're supposed to do that shit. I always tell people you're supp- when you're in college, you should be doing everything you're not supposed to do. And it drives me crazy when people don't. Maybe- yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's the one time, you know, in your, Excuse me. <laughs> it's one time in your adult life where you can do anything you want. Yep. You can learn anything you want. Go do that. I don't understand people. I never understood my, you know, the guys I knew in engineering school, the guys I knew in business administration who, you know, they stayed away from the humanities like grim death. Right. And I could never understand that. I mean, I understand because they were in much tougher curriculum, curricula than I was. But I just, I, I couldn't have gone to college that way. Right. 100% agree. Yeah. Um, you, um, I probably told you this over DM. You, you your writing keeps me sane, right? <laughs> it, I really mean that. There's something about, I, when I turn to heartbreak, when I need the heartbreak of the political climate, I read the New York Times, I read the Washington Post, I read the Wall Street Journal. When I need... It, this is going to sound weird. Someone to, in a weird way, make me feel like this is all farce. I go to New York Magazine and I go to you. And I am fascinated. You're, you're obviously, you've been the political you know, blogger for Esquire since 2011. You write these great pieces that, that break things down. But how are you not losing your fucking mind? It's, it's, it's been harder now than it ever has been before. Uh, but it's just such a target rich environment and it's one of the things that's helped is when I first started, I was at the Boston Phoenix, which was one of the more prominent alternative papers in the country. I was there for five years. And one of the things they did was they threw me into the deep end of the pool right away. They sent me out on the road, and at least partly, in the 1980 campaign, the Reagan campaign, mm-hmm. Reagan-Carter campaign. And I saw the beginning of the transformation of American conservatism and with it the Republican Party into what is it, it has eventually become. So basically what I'm writing about now is the logical end to what I started writing in politics in 1980. It's a straight line. Uh, you know, right, the, 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 the marriage of, of splinter American Protestantism to conservative economic ideology, the, la- the, 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 the lack of, of respect for empirical science, the lack of respect for reason, all of these things started in the 1980s. The, you know, deliberate turning of the back of the Republican traditions as far as conservation and, and as far as race relations. You know, they were the party of Lincoln for a lot of years. Right. Beginning in about 1964, they turned their back on that. It really, and that really accelerated with Reagan, as did the beginning of the deregulation which we have now, and all of these we are now seeing in their culmination 
with the situation we find ourselves in now. You know, as I said, Donald, 30 years of Republicanism made someone like Donald Trump not merely possible, but inevitable. We're just lucky. I say lucky because it's a relative thing. We're just fortunate that he's really bad at it. If we had, if we, if it had culminated in a really effective authoritarian, we would be in deeper grief than we are now. Do you, so do you feel like as a writer, having covered Reagan, Carter, Anderson in 1980, I threw an Anderson to impress you, by the way. Yeah, I voted for him. Yeah. The only uh, Republican yeah. I've ever voted for him for president. Yeah, love John Anderson. Um, do you feel that covering that gives you a long game viewpoint that allows you to see this for what it is as opposed to, because I feel like what you lack in a good way is, holy shit, holy shit, the world's coming to an end, the world's coming to an end, this is it, we're all done. I don't get that vibe from you. I get, this is really fucked up, but here's what it is. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, and this comes from George Reedy, who I mentioned before. He would hold impromptu seminars in his office at the end of the day uh, where he would take the bottle of whiskey out of the drawer at the desk drawer and pour for us and, and tell us in one of his, his fundamental axioms that I just absolutely latched onto and never have never let go of is that almost nothing in American politics is new, be that an idea or a crisis or anything. Right. Something similar to it has happened before. And all you have to do is go back and do enough reading and do enough of, uh, you know, enough, enough research to tease it out. And, you know, we've had out of control departments of justice before. The Palmer raids uh, in, the 1920, in, the, in the late teens and, and, and early 1920s. Uh, we're shipping people with, they were shipping anybody, you know, left of Woodrow Wilson out of the country. Right. Uh, so that was something that George really, you know, in, 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 in impressed on me. He also, he also used to say that the worst kind of journalistic narcissism was to believe that the problems you have are more serious than the problems anybody else has ever had. Interesting. As he always said, we had a civil war. Right. You know, I mean, uh, so I think that that encouraged me early on to take a longer view towards things. Interesting. Uh, plus, I you know I love to marinate in 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 books and in history. I and when I would go out back in the days where you could leave your house and go research a story, if I would go to a town, the first place I would go would be the local history section of the town library. Oh yeah. Because there's always a sixty year old volunteer who is dying to tell you everything. Because nobody comes in and ever asks him or her a question. 100%. So you go in, you say, okay, you know, if you're writing about, say, a ball player from this little town, you say, all right, tell me about the flood in 1953. And this person will just rattle off, you know, she'll show you stuff to read, give you the clips from the local newspapers, uh, show you the local history books. So then you go to the guy that you're writing about, and instead of saying, you know, how did it feel? to strike out three guys in the ninth inning and win that game, you can say, hey, you were nine when the flood hit. What was that like? Yep. And immediately, you're in a conversation. You're not in an interview. Yep. So not only does that give you, you know, some stuff to, to, 
really flesh out and, and, and give depth and solidity to what you're writing, it helps with the interview. And I think that that's also a legacy from those, you know, whiskey laden chats with George, uh, where he explained to you that, you know, almost everything has a backstory. You just got to find it. I just want to say, I feel like you can always tell when you're reading a biography, you can tell the difference between whether the person went to the local library or not. And it is a huge difference. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they're, you know, they're one of, the free public library is one of the, the miracles of the United States of America. Uh, one, of, one of the best ideas Benjamin Franklin ever had, and he, had, and he invented the stove. I mean, uh, and the lightning rod, discover electricity. Uh, but the free public library is just, you know, it's a godsend. Uh, and, you know, I don't know how, you know, whether, I mean, I, I think I, I mean, I realized about three or four years ago that I let my library card lapse. And I, it was the first time I'd been without a library card since I was nine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, all, I mean, the free public library was the internet. You just had to work a little harder. I'd say better than the internet. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, there's less, there's probably less garbage in it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, that's, you know, that, that, that was always my rule. I go to, you know, War Road, Minnesota or, or, you know, Southern University or something and, you know, just go to the library and just sit there and marinate use half of it but you'll know stuff yeah you'll learn stuff oh yeah um and without curiosity to... there's no point in doing this job did you ever go do you ever have the fortune of going to the sports illustrated library no i've been using the vault which i love oh these... and of course i had every issue uh from about 1966 on under my bed when i went to college my mother threw them all out along with all my comic books uh but uh, yeah i mean i've I, I, I glory in the vault. I go back and read story, you know, I go back and read Frank DeFord on, you know, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Connors or, or Irvy the whale. Oh yeah. Or, or, you know, Jenkins on the Nebraska Oklahoma game in 1971. You know, all the, all the you know, stuff that you would read every week. These guys would produce this every week. Yeah. It was astonishing to me. So when I was a kid, my, uh, my parents would only subscribe to sport magazine because uh, sports Illustrated was too expensive and nobody cared about sports in my house. But my, my neighbor one house over was this guy named John Daly, long deceased. And he got SI. And he would, put, he would bundle them and put them on the curb for the, for the garbage men to pick up. Yep. And I would always run over when it was night and no one was looking. Take the bundle, bring it back. I still have them under my bed, all the old. Yeah, so sport, sport Magazine wasn't bad. No, no. I'm back in the day. I mean, they ran some very strong investigative stuff and some very strong uh, – Strong profiles. Uh, I think Bill Hines wrote for Sport Magazine for a while. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dick Schapp, obviously. Dick Schapp wrote from, I think, from the time he was, you know, four. Yeah. But, uh, no, I remember the only one, my mother would throw out the swimsuit issue every year. Oh, funny. Except, I just threw it out. It just came to my house for, and just threw it out. Except for 1969, because I had a letter to the editor published. Wait, for uh, real? Complimenting them on picking Bill Russell for the Sportsman of the Year. <laughs> and that ran and in these... That ran in the swimsuit issue? It ran, it, Zowie, it's Maui was the cover. I still remember it. And we hung on to that. And I'll, years later, I ran it to Tony Kornheiser. And one of his first published national bylines was a letter to. You don't have that frame somewhere in your. No, I don't. I, I, you know, I, I, this was one I saved. And then in one of half a dozen moves, I lost somewhere. 
that's really funny. Before we continue with Two Writers Singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who just watched a YouTube video of 5,000 maskless idiots joining together in prayer on a beach near our house. I was inspired. How is that anything but horrifying? Because I can only assume they were praying to God to bring each and every one of us a new USFL jersey from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. And that, like a visit to 503-sports.com, is nothing short of godly. I'm pretty sure they think we're both damned to an eternity in hell. Well, no one's perfect. Um, I uh, The other day, a friend of mine named Michael Lewis, not Moneyball Michael Lewis, but another excellent writer named Michael Lewis, he texted me and he said, did you see Pierce on John Lewis? Did you read this? This is one of the best things I've read. And um, I just want to, you wrote it July 18th. It was called John Lewis was a mighty American soul. And your lead was, I just want to say, Abraham Lincoln's backside. I could never meet John Lewis without thinking of Abraham Lincoln's backside because when they asked about the Great March on Washington in 1963, John Lewis always mentioned Abraham Lincoln's backside. He was 23 years old then, the chairman of the new Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He was two years distant from a stay in Mississippi's notorious Parchment State Prison, the great haunted place beneath a hundred blue songs for the crime of using a white rest restroom. He was two years away from nearly being murdered by Alabama state troopers for the crime of wanting to vote. He was 23 and he was angry. The rhetoric John Lewis brought to Washington offered a piece of not a sword. Then you go on and on. It's, yeah. it's a beautiful freaking piece of writing. Not that you need me to tell you that. It's a, just beautiful. Um, I kind of wonder, like John Lewis dies. You write for Esquire, you know, you write the political blog. What are you thinking? How do you approach it? How long does it take you to come up with the sort of how you're going to do it? Well, I wrote that at about when he died Friday, I guess, right? And I'd already shut the blog down for the week. And I texted my editor in New York and I said, do you want something for tomorrow? And he said, yeah. So I sat down. And I thought about the two or three times I'd actually sat down and talked to him, uh, which, you know, I was, I, I did okay, but I was turning the butter inside. I mean, it, he is unquestionably the greatest man I've ever met. Certainly the bravest. Before this podcast. Exactly. Uh, uh, and every time we talked, he would tell me this story about how he presented his speech to the organizers of the march, what he planned to say. And he scared him to death. I mean, he, he, he ripped John Kennedy, who was two blocks away in the White House watching. He talked about going through the South like Sherman nonviolently. And Bayard Rustin and, and, and Martin King and, and, and A. Philip Randolph and all said, you know, we got to cool this guy down. So they looked for a place to work with him on it. And all they could find was a little room. I don't I, Sometimes he said it was a storage closet. Sometimes he said it was an office. But it's under the back of the Lincoln statue in the Lincoln Memorial. Like under the, it's like in the pedestal. And he always referred to it as the work I did under Mr. Lincoln's backside. And then he would laugh. This happened three or four times. The three or four times I interviewed him. And I just, I wanted to be respectful. But I also wanted to, to, have a note of, of joy and celebration to it, to celebrate this amazing American life. So that's how that started. And then it just, it just flowed from there. It was easy from there because it was some, you know, it was somebody who I, who I find, who I found, you know, incredibly important and incredibly, 
I just said, I haven't met me, haven't met many giants in my time, but he's one of them. So I wanted to do him right. But at the same time, I wanted to, I didn't want to be grim. I didn't want to be funereal. I wanted to be, you know, this is, this is, this was the human guy. You know, this was the funny guy. This is the guy who, you know, talked about this major American event from the perspective of being under Mr. Lincoln's backside. Yeah. It was really well done. It was really great. Um, do you, um, can you find humor in Donald Trump and what is happening right now? Or are you just horrified? And I hate doing the double up, but do you, you hear a lot of people now who sort of, we're not going to, we're, we're screwed. If, if Trump wins again, this country is over, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, where do you, where do you kind of find yourself thinking politically? I think if he gets reelected, this country will be transformed into something we don't recognize. I don't think it's going to be over. I don't think we're, you know, you know we're going to break up into nine governmental units and become Europe. Um, sure. I mean, how can you, I, it's, it's, the humor will inevitably in this situation be bitter and be angry and be mocking, but it's still humor. Right. I mean, it's still, you know, it's, it's the dark end. It's the dark stuff that Mark Twain wrote at the end of his career. Uh, if you go, if you read him from start to finish by the end, he got really dark, but he was also still very funny and very acute. And yeah, I mean, I think it could still be funny. Uh, a little bit more vinegar than honey at this point, though. Do you think he wins again? No. I don't see it. Uh, I think the only doubt in the election right now, as of July 22nd, uh, is whether or not the Democrats take the Senate. I think there'll be a tremendous upheaval in state legislatures. Uh, I didn't come to, I didn't start thinking this until about a week ago. But I think anything else he couldn't, he could have gotten out from under. I think the pandemic's going to wipe him out. You just can't do this. You can't have 140,000 Americans die on your watch and have nobody in the country believe what you're saying about those deaths and survive. If, if he manages to survive politically, everything I know about politics is wrong uh, or something's hinky uh, because this is, I mean, this is, this is worse than Lyndon Johnson in the spring of 1968. Yeah. So it's happening down the street. It's happening to your grandmother. It's, it, you know, it's, it's not happening to 19 year old draftees from across town. It's happening, you know, to your grandmother, to your mother, your father, your aging parents who, if they're not sick are dying. And if they're not dying, they're terrified. Uh, it's, you know, it's all around you. I went, I walked to the post office today. The first time, I'd strayed really out of my, out of my neighborhood hmm. since St. Patrick's Day. It was weird. I mean, it was strange. Uh, it was like, and this is a post office I've been to, God, I don't know, four or 500 times probably yeah. in my life. It was like walking into a, a fun house or a, you know, a, a, a ghost house or something. Uh, it's, it's, it's just such an odd place. I'm a little worried. Uh, no, I, think, I think it's going to be a brutal, vicious campaign. I think it's, it's going to be no holes barred 
and a few dozen more invented before it's over. But I think it could be an enormously brutal campaign leading to a fairly easy election. I hope so. But, you know, who knows? I mean, who, who knows what shenanigans will go on at the polls? Yeah, yeah. Um, you, uh, you wrote for the National. I did. I freaking love it. Also for that. Grantland. Neither one of those. Yeah, I'm really good at that. The lesson, don't hire Charlie Pierce here. <laughs> you want to survive. Um, Not for your startup, anyway. Yeah, exactly. So the National was, uh, was Frank DeFord's start, left Sports Illustrated, started a daily sports newspaper. Um, it was awesome. It was amazing. It didn't last very long. Um, it's a big, broad question. What do you remember from the experience? Well, I, you know, I remember I had been writing sports columns for the Boston Herald, which was a tabloid. And, you know, I've been writing, you know, five or 600 words. And I had come from the Boston Phoenix where we were encouraged to write with voice and at length. And here was the national coming along saying, I go back to writing 3000 words again. And I remember the first piece I wrote thinking, you know, I feel like the guy in bridge on the river Kwai, when they put him in the box for a week and they let him out, he doesn't really know how to walk anymore. He doesn't know how to make his legs move. That's the way I felt. And I sat down and wrote the first one. Uh, but I was incredibly fortunate to have, to work with, you know, on what we call the main event, which was this takeout uh, in the middle of every issue uh, with uh, Rob Flater and David Granger, who became my editor for the next almost 30 years at GQ and then at Esquire. And, you know, writers like Peter Richmond and Ian Thompson, Janet Howard, that was our our three, those were our three staffers. Uh, and I just, I, I remember it being just this, this wonderful hayride that everybody knew was going to come to a bad end. Well, how so? How'd you know? Well, I mean, it, it, we launched without a business plan and with no real idea on circulation. Uh, we were all giving, given laptops that wouldn't interface with the computers in New York. We had a satellite dish on the roof of the building. They didn't work when it snowed. We had to send people up there with a broom to brush the snow off the satellite dish. We had this piggyback uh, long distance telephone system that one day in the spring of 1991 completely collapsed. Nobody could make a call anywhere. Uh, And then in April or May of 91, the Mexicans, the people who ran it for Univisa down in Mexico City, showed up in New York unannounced and just decapitated the entire business staff. Wow. And at that point, you know, we started to feel really bad tremors in the force. And Mike Lupa, I'll never forget the day Mike Lupica left, and they offered me his Friday you know, what I was thinking, dot, 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 one, one line bullet column that, you know, he, he does shooting from the lip. Right. They wanted to keep it. And they understood that I had written something similar and the Herald. So they offered me this weekly column. And I said, well, yeah, but I'm going to take, I'm going to need some more money. And Frank said, well, how much? And I quoted him, you know, and a figure that must have, that to me sounded like I was on mushrooms. And he said, Okay, done. And I said to my wife, uh, the good news is we're making X more amount of money. The bad news is 
there's absolutely no way this thing can survive if they're operating like this. Wow. That's amazing. But it was, it was, it was important to me. It, I mean, I got a national profile out of it. I met people who were helpful to my entire career and it got me back to writing long form, which is what I wanted to do anyway. So I have no regrets about it at all. Do you still have all the national? No, I have, I have some, but not all. Uh, I have the first and last issues, which I saved somewhere in my basement. Uh, I don't have all my clips, but I have, I put a lot of them in an anthology I put together. So I have, you know, I have them. I don't have the actual clips. Uh, the Boston Public Library has a complete set. So anytime I need a, a Xerox or whatever, Glenn Stout, in fact, the guy who runs this yeah. American sports writing, uh, he was the, the sports archivist at the Boston Public Library for years. He made it a point to get every issue of the National. So that in the BPL, in the stacks, they have a complete set. So anytime I need, you know, to, if I ever need to make a Xerox, I can go there and get one. I just realized something. You, um, I just thought of this. You were the final editor of the Best American Sports Writing. No, no, no. Jackie McMullen will be. They're oh. doing one more issue. So it's Jackie. You did the year before. I did this then, year. I did the I, one that's on the stands now. Uh, Jackie will do next year, and that'll be it. And I did last year. So, uh, yeah. we, so I don't know. Is that a sign of uh, the death of Best American Sports Writing, which I know for well, a lot of uh, Houghton Mifflin is doing away with the whole series. They're doing I mean, away with Best Science Writing, Best Travel Writing, uh, Best uh, – uh, I guess they did best short stories. Uh, they're doing away with that whole genre. Is that so, a, uh, is that just I think a, a terrible sign? idea? Is that a, I think sign it's a terrible idea? I think it's a, it's a sign at the time. Of course, I mean, and they did it. They made this decision before the pandemic. Yeah. So it's not the pandemic. It's, it's a, you know, a conscious business decision. Uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's too bad. I think it was a great thing to have brought back. I have several, of the old best American sports writing from the sixties yep. down in my library. And I was glad when they brought them back. Yeah. The uh, national was very happy with it because it, I mean, even though the, most of the people who judged the various journalism awards hated us and wouldn't give us awards, best American sports writing was always good to us. Yeah. So that helped. So, yeah, I mean, I feel I was honored to have the job. Uh, I met, through their prose, a lot of terrific writers, most of whom are young. Uh, and, you know, I was just happy to do it. I was, I was glad to be asked. It was a lot, it was more work than I thought it would be. Cutting it down was incredibly hard. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I knew when I did it, I knew there were certain stories that had to be in it. George Nasser had to be in it. I needed the best George Nasser piece I could find. Right. And I needed, uh, I knew that the Globes, Boston Globe's coverage of the Aaron Hernandez trial had to be in there. There were certain big stories, and all I needed to do was find the best story I could find on those topics. And then I just let, you know, I just let my freak flag fly. Uh, you know, I, the guy who's, who's, who found a way for his autistic son to compete by competitive solving of the Rubik's Cube. Right. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I did find, you know, I, I didn't find cutting down to the final 100 hard. I found cutting down to the 30 very hard. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. Um, I, think my I found the temptation to, to look, to Google the piece and find out who the writer was uh, very hard. 
to resist, although I managed to do it. Once I sent the stories to Glenn, yeah. having decided, I looked them all up. Yeah. And I was, you know, Wright Thompson was in there. I was not surprised by that. Right. Uh, but some of them were, you know, you know, this piece was in, you know, Mountain Climbers Weekly or something. Right. Uh, wow. I didn't know that even existed. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I enjoyed, I, I very much enjoyed doing it. Did you know that Grantlin, you say when oh. you got to the National, you didn't think it would last. Did you feel the same about Grantlin when you got there? No, I didn't actually. And it was funny. I don't know where my video went there. I see uh, you. I see you. I can't see you. How do I? I'm not much to look at. So you're okay. No, I understand. But I like talking face to face. How do I get this back? You have any idea? I have no idea. Did you press right. it? But you, this is just recording anyway, right? It's just recording. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, no, I didn't because I thought I had ESPN behind it. And then when Bill Simmons left, I thought that ESPN, just to prove a point, would keep us going. Yeah. To prove they could do it without Bill. I was extremely shocked to get a phone call saying that it was going out of business. I had no, ind no indication that was coming at all. I know Bill had ended badly, but that had been a month, month and a half before. So I figured that was, uh, you know, that was, uh, uh, you know, we had, we had cleared that hurdle. Right. Um, wait, I, I'm interested. I wasn't going to ask about this because I didn't think of it. But um, so when Simmons came along at first, I liked him. Then I wasn't a huge fan because I didn't love all the sort of homerism of, you know, Celtics and Boston sports. And I, I was kind of, I, I tend to be stodgy at times and I tend to be traditionalist and where I, you know, uh, this and that. I do have those impulses. And now I kind of look at him and I think, you know what? This guy figured out something that a lot of people haven't figured out. He actually did something inventive and unique and he's taking this brand and blah, 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 in a time when you need to do that. Um, where do you fall on kind of the Simmons? Well, I think, I think outside of Matt Drudge and maybe Josh Marshall, Mar excuse me, Josh Marshall, I don't know of any single individual who saw the potential of the internet more clearly than Bill Simmons did. Yeah. He decided that he wasn't going to be, he wasn't going to take the conventional career path into journalism, which is to go to a small paper and wait your turn, slightly bigger paper and wait your turn, a big paper, wait your turn. He did pretty much what he had for, what he had for the internet. I had for the, with the alternative press. Right. It was, you didn't go, you didn't go over the, you didn't go over the barriers. You went around them. He had the internet yep. and you know, he has monetized it and exploited its potential far beyond even drudge. I mean, <clears throat> and the other thing about Bill, which I didn't know until I worked at Grantlin, he's a remarkable talent scout uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he really recognizes good writers and number two, he really, he, he's, he's not overawed by credentials. Right. If you are just starting out and you've only written on the internet and your stuff is good, he will find you, he will seek you out, and he will publish you. Right. And he's very rarely wrong. If you look at the, at the people, you know, he brought in through Grantland and the people he's bringing in through the ringer now. Right. Do you miss writing long pieces? I do. In fact, I just did one. Uh, I just did a profile for Esquire magazine. It'll run in the fall on Jamie Harrison, the guy who's 
running against Lindsey Graham oh, in yeah, South Carolina. Uh, and uh, it was fun. It was weird because I had to do the research all over Zoom. Yeah. I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, which made me feel like I'd only done half the job, you know? Yeah. But I had met him at a political event in South Carolina uh, last fall. Yeah, actually, at the end of last summer, beginning of last fall. And I had a lot of stuff from that I hadn't used. So I was able to put some life, some life into, uh, into it. And, uh, you know, the, so it, 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 it does, it isn't just all stuff by Zoom. But uh, I do miss it, and I want to do more of it. Uh, does a guy like Harrison, like um, when you were doing a story, <clears throat> like a magazine piece for the Boston Globe magazine or a lengthy piece for Esquire or whatever, a decade ago or however long, are they still in 2020, 2019, this era, as excited to have an Esquire profile done on it? You know, I think we all, you know, anybody who was a sports writer, as I was through the late 70s and early 80s and, and through the 80s, knew that, you know, we had taken second share to television. Yeah. I mean, that was just the way of the world. It happened, you know, long before I ever got into the business. And that was just the way it was. Now, though, between uh, the internet, television, you know, the, the, the splintered world of, of television, video, social media, and athletes having their own direct connection with the fans, I think, you know, while I love to do them, and I think they're worthwhile, long magazine pieces are... are I don't want to say they're an anachronism, but they don't carry the cloud they once did. Yeah. Uh, I remember in 2008, we couldn't get a sit down with Barack Obama when he was running for president. But Simmons did because his people thought having Barack Obama sit for an interview at ESPN2 or page two, the ESPN.com would mean more to their campaign than having a profile in Esquire. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's the way of the world. Uh, and it's hard. I mean, you've got to resist the temptation to think you're writing for yourself. But that's really hard sometimes. It's, it's interesting. Um, I wrote a Walter Payton biography about a decade ago. And mm -hmm. it was excerpted on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And I was giddy euphoric couldn't have been happier great blah 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 this is awesome i would say nowadays and this sucks but i would say the value of a sports illustrated cover excerpt is less than being on the uh some blog like an espn bleacher report or esquire bloggers it's just like it just doesn't carry it anymore you know no i agree and uh you know that's that to me is a loss yeah uh a personal loss because i grew up reading those guys and they, they went a long way towards pointing me toward what I wanted to do. Uh, and, you know, I just, I, I just think that, you know, writing in depth still has place. I mean, all you've got to do is see what, you know, what David Remnick has done at the New Yorker or what, uh, you know, you know, I mean, it was a, you can't understand, you know, race in this country in 2020 without reading Ta-Nehisi Coates. You just can't. I mean, it's, you're missing half the story.
Right. And he, you know, he's, that's a long form essay. That's his, that's his, you know, his metier. Uh, so I did like, I think this is still a place for it, but you have to recognize that, as you said, you have to prove your own value much more than you used to. Right. And I think personal branding has moved ahead of publication branding in terms of influence. Definitely. I mean, I think, Definitely. you know, maybe even ESPN magazine doesn't count as much as Bill Simmons. I would agree. 100%. Or Stephen A. Smith or whoever. Yeah. You're right. You know who's figured that out? And I hate it because I can't stand him as a personality. Skip Bayless. Skip Bayless figured that out. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what he does with it. Uh, Makes money. You know, he, he, he's, he's, he's a hot take artist, but I don't know that he's writing anything. I was speaking totally in terms of, of people sitting for interviews. Oh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's, we're all, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, what was, you know, Norman Mailer had a book called Advertisements for Myself. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, damn it, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And I don't like it either. But it, it, at this point, it's, it's, it's sink or swim. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a final question because I ask everyone who comes on this. Sure. What is your biggest experience with an asshole from your journalism career? Your most memorable or noteworthy? Oh boy. Uh, let me think. Or embarrassing, you know, or someone scream, you know, choose you out or someone, you know, the whole kind of. Oh, uh, I, I wrote, this is, you know, he's passed away now. God rest his soul. But I wrote a column, very harsh column about Doug Flutie when he, crossed the picket line and joined the Patriots. Uh, I think the, the word Rumpelstiltskin appeared in it a couple of times. And his father called me at the Herald and invited me to drive out to Natick so he could punch me in the nose. Wow. And I said, Dick, think about what you just said. Why would I get in my car and drive 25 minutes through rush hour traffic so you can hit me in the nose. If you want to hit me in the nose, come to the Herald and hit me in the nose. <laughs> awesome. But, you know, I mean, I had the usual locker room. I had dust up with Roger Clemens at one point. Uh, was he tough? Was he as tough as um, – I mean, I wrote a book on him. This was when he was young and arrogant and incredibly full of himself. Yeah. He tried to take my notebook away. He actually reached down and grabbed it? He tried to. I flipped it over my shoulder to another reporter, and he carried it out of the locker room. I was like Bob Cousy. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's funny. Um, uh, I actually thought I had, you were, go you know, ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, when I was, um, I only tell this because you dealt with him. When I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, and I was sports editor of my student newspaper, the, the Mayo Pack High School Chieftain, which I'm sure you've read a lot. And um, Probably changed its name by now. It has not because I come from Podunk, and they actually oh, okay. um, nicknamed the Indians, have not changed it. Um, I got an interview with Victor Kayam, owner of the New England. Oh, Patriots. really? All I wanted to do was, you know, I was trying to be big time. So I get an interview with Victor Kayam, his receptionist or executive assistant. We're going to connect you with Mr. Kayam and he'll talk to you. It's great. High school newspaper. That's really nice. And we're going to do it. I get patched through. It's the first time I've ever, I'm on my phone, my home phone on Emerald Lane. 
Mr. Kayam, we have Jeff Perlman on the line. Jeff Perlman. Who's Jeff Perlman? He's the, uh, he's the high school kid who wants to interview you. High school kid? I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have time for this. I don't even know. What? Who? What? Well, I'm sorry. No. Click. That was my first and only interview with Victor Kayam, Patriots owner. Well, he, uh, was he the Patriots owner when you're talking? Yeah, he was. Was this pre or post Lisa Olson? I think pre, actually. Yeah, uh, Lisa worked at the Herald with me. Uh, the most frightening uh, moment I've had, uh, even worse than being up in the middle of the riots in Miami in the Super Bowl in 1989 or 90, was waiting in the end zone of what was then Schaefer Stadium in Foxborough with Lisa. There were about five of us who stood around her. Uh, waiting to get into the Patriots locker room after that story broke. And this, what came out of the crowd was, you know, Dante's fifth ring of hell. I wow. mean, I, I don't understand how she, she went on, but I mean, I thank God she did because she's enormously talented. But I've, n- I've never heard anything like that before. I want to thank today's guest, Charlie Pierce, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Charlie on Twitter at Charles P. Pierce and read his stuff at the Esquire Politics blog. One can listen to Two Writers Singing Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the sizzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. I do not make the rules, and I do not ask